Our scripture this morning comes from Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in, my, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father God, you are merciful and wonderful, and your gospel is mysterious. We just treasure your word that you've given to us, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you encourage us in, in our, our darkest times, and you keep us moving forward, and you promise to, um, to give us new life in your son, Jesus. Bless uh, Kevin as he brings the word this morning, and open our hearts to it. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Am I on? Yes, I am. Okay. Can you guys hear me? We good? Yes? No? Maybe so? Yes? Okay, good. Awesome. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to um, Ephesians chapter 6. Um, and while you are turning over there, I kind of want to just uh, say to you guys, so, some of you that have been around a while uh, and know me know that you know, I reference um, C.S. Lewis, who is one of my favorite authors fairly uh, regularly uh, when, when I'm preaching. Um, and and I, I actually make it a point uh, just about every year to reread Mere Christianity just because it was one of the, the, the foundational books that the Lord used for me early on uh, in, in my walk with the Lord. Um, and so I continue even, you know, some you know, 12, 13 years later to, to find it helpful. And, and while I wouldn't consider uh, C.S. Lewis uh, to be my favorite theologian, um, I would consider him to be one of my favorite authors. And you know, books like, you know, how many of you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia series or at least watched some of the movies? Yeah, a good, a good majority of you guys, right? Books like the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Great Divorce, Mere Christianity. Uh, I just finished up reading a series that he did called Out of the Silent Planet, which I highly, highly recommend if none of you guys have ever uh, read that, are some of my favorite books. But as I was going through the text this past week, I, I realized that perhaps one of, one of the books that I mention most often and reflect on most frequently uh, by him is a book entitled The Screwtape Letters. 
which is, which is kind of funny because it's not really something you would think that <laughs> you know, you're going to think about a lot. But the screw type letters, if you're unfamiliar with them, um, the book is a series of letters written by a senior level demon. Yeah, it's fun, right? right? So it, it, written by the senior level demon named Screwtape, and he's writing these letters to his nephew, Wormwood. And, and the purpose of the letters is to teach Wormwood to, to, to keep his patient, as he's referenced throughout the letters, away from the truth of the gospel. And spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, sorry, you're going to get some spoilers here. Um, the, the, the patient ends up becoming a follower of Christ. And once the, the patient becomes a follower of Christ, the remaining letters are written to encourage Wormwood on how to keep um, the, this follower of Christ astray and to lead him uh, away and rob him of his victory in Christ. And so the book is by no means meant to be an exhaustive study of angels and demons. There are plenty of resources out there if that's something you are interested in and would like to study at some point. But I do find interesting that the book, that the, the book is presenting spiritual warfare in such a way as to be relatable and highly understandable by us. Um, he, Lewis presents screw tape as this subtle, cunning uh, demon who understands humans very well and understands our vices and what we have working against us and then can use those things against us to rob us of the realities of the gospel. And the most fascinating line in the entire book, in my opinion, though, does not actually come anywhere in any of the letters that Screwtape writes to Wormwood, but actually comes in the preface of the book. And it goes like this. Lewis says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy, unhealthy, not unhealthy, I don't know what that word is, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The point that, that C.S. Lewis is making is that a materialist refuses to accept that spiritual warfare might actually exist while a magician is overly concerned with the work of the devil. And both are equally dangerous because they either ignore the work of Satan going on around us or they believe him to be involved in every aspect of our lives. Now, and, and by the way, every single one of us in this room have experienced either ourselves or someone else who holds to one of these views of spiritual warfare. Right? How many of you guys ever heard somebody say, the devil made me do it, when they've done something they're not supposed to do? Yeah, like six of you, because that's like an older statement that older people used to always say. Right? You younger people, t we tend to, at being products of the enlightenment, right, lean towards materialism. 
Everything has a, a natural answer, and therefore we refuse to accept the fact that spiritual warfare might exist altogether. And what ends up happening with either one of these two views is we allow Satan way too much freedom in our lives. We either give him too much power, thinking that he controls more than he does, or we refuse to accept the fact that spiritual warfare does in fact exist. And the reason I'm talking about this, you're like, hey, well, wait a minute, what are we, what are we, why are we talking about screw tape letters at the last section of the book of Ephesians? The reason is, is because Paul is going to, uh, to directly address the reality of spiritual warfare in this last part of his letter. He's, he's going to finish strong in talking to the church at Ephesus of saying, hey, there is a spiritual battle raging every day of every hour, and you, church, need to be ready for it. It is important that we as the church in 2018 understand what the Bible does and does not say about Satan and his demons so that we don't get weird. Like straight up, Christians get weird about spiritual warfare, right? Like anybody ever have like one of those guardian angel pens that their grandmother used to pray to for them? kind of weird, okay? Like, like you, you guys in the 90s, you're like, oh yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that when I was like two. That was like a big thing in the early 90s, right? There was this show called Touched by an Angel on television then, right? Some of you guys with the Hallmark Channel probably can still watch that, the reruns, right? Everyone's like, oh, like my guardian angel's here, you know? Like, there was just this weird fascination with, with the spiritual realm going on in the 90s, whereas now we've entered into the season where like, acceptance of anything outside the natural order is deemed crazy and loony. And, and plenty of well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians can get this stuff wrong. So we're going to see that the word presents to us that we need to be aware and prepared daily for the battle that is going on in front of us. And I promise that we're gonna not get too weird this morning. Uh, Pastor Daniel is gonna bring snakes out later. Um, so, he's like, uh-uh. Right. By the way, when Pastor Daniel was gonna come here, he was asking me like vague questions to get how like charismatic I was. I should have told him like, yeah, you know, we only tame snakes once a month at our church. By the way, if you guys come from one of those backgrounds, um, I'm sorry that we're making fun of you, but it's fun to make fun of you. So um, we can make fun of me too for different things as well. All right, so Ephesians chapter six, go ahead and open that up if you're not there already, starting in verse 10. Paul says this, finally, right? So he's, he's getting to it, the last big point he's gonna make here in this letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. All right, so the first thing I want to kind of point out as we look at those first four verses is look at the language that Paul uses there, 
right? He says, be strong in the strength of his might, referring to Jesus. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Wrestle with the cosmic power and spiritual forces of evil and withstand and stand firm. Guys, unless you and I wake up every morning realizing that there is an unseen battle going on for our soul and our affections for God, then we will end up a casualty of war. Like that language does not leave room right, for interpretation on how God views spiritual warfare. Oh, it might be just something that's kind of around. No, he's like, stand firm, put on armor, be ready to battle, wrestle with evil forces and cosmic powers, right? There's all this language, and unless we realize that this battle exists and is going on around us, we will end up being a casualty of that battle, robbed of joy, and stuck in rebellion consistently towards God. Now, Look, I, I know that I am preaching to a group of people that is quick to dismiss the existence of the spiritual realm. The, the reality is, is, in 2018, that's just not something we think about frequently, okay? But the Bible is littered with examples of spiritual warfare and the fact that it exists. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 8, Right, I'm just going to share one, one little story here in, in the Gospel of Matthew of the fact that not only did Jesus recognize this existed, but he actually confronted it. He actually confronted the reality of spiritual warfare. Look at what he says, starting in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 8. He says, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons, tracking that, there's multiple demons inside these two men, right? Look at what it says. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. I love that, right? Jesus just dropping a one-liner, go. That's it. Not, Not talking, not having a discussion with the demons, just orders them to move on. And look what happens. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Everyone's like, what? Yeah, Jesus just ruined their economy. And so they're a little bit more more worried about their paycheck than they're worried about these two demon-possessed men that have been plaguing them outside their city. Right, so here you have Jesus rolling into, in, in, into the, the country of the Gadarenes, and right, as he gets there, he, he, meet, he comes across these two men, and he exercises these demons out of these two men, and instead of worshiping and being excited about what Jesus has just done, these guys are worried about how much money they're going to make and how much money they just lost with these pigs drowning in the ocean. Okay, But the reality is, is Jesus confronted demons 
in his walk and in his ministry. Right, if you read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, right, Peter kind of finishing up his letter to uh, the, the churches uh, around Israel, and look at what he says. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice that like Peter could have used any animal in the animal kingdom, and who does he use? The lion. Right, because the reality of spiritual warfare is that it's fierce and that it's dangerous. Right? And most of us aren't getting up in the morning right, worried about the reality of spiritual, go- spiritual warfare going on around us. Even in the text this morning, right, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but what? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's like, look, if, if you are struggling in your marriage, if you are struggling at your job, if you are struggling in relationships, if you are struggling to overcome sin, your battle is not just with that person, but there's an actual spiritual battle going on. Right? Pastor Daniel mentioned this a couple weeks ago in the, in the Q&A when talking about marriage and, and the role that sin plays before marriage and then after marriage. And, and guys, I'm, t- I'm here to tell you this is 100% true. Right? There is something special and unique about God's design for marriage. And you can enjoy one another when dating and, and, and being in sin and whatever else. And literally, the moment you're married, there's like this, this switch where everything that you can do inside your marriage that brings glory to God is going to seem like a struggle. Because Satan is, is in opposition to that relationship and the fact that it reflects the glory of God in the gospel. Right? Spiritual warfare is all around us. And so the, the question we, we need to kind of wade through is saying, okay, P- Paul shares in these four verses two reasons that I can see of, uh, of why we need to be ready for spiritual warfare. Right, the first one is so that we are aware of the fact that we are in an actual battle itself. Um, it, if, if we are aware that this is going on around us, we can create strategies and follow biblical principles to fight out this battle. How many of you guys have ever played on a sports team at some point in your life? I don't care what sport it was. Okay, How many of you guys that played on a sports team had a coach? Yeah, every, everyone, right? Unless you coached yourself, which would be really cool, but you were still the coach, so you had a coach, okay? How many of you guys in playing on one of those sports teams ever experienced a game where you either blew out a team or the other team blew you out because the other team was outcoached and outclassed? Right, like half the room, right? He's over here raising his hand. He is a coach, right? I don't know if he's talking about himself or someone else, right? Guys, how many of you guys are Gator fans in here? Yeah, there we go. Okay. This happens. I watched the previous two coaching regimes at this university. Them getting out coached happened a lot, right? They would show up to a game and like 40 points later in the second quarter, you're like, oh, did they know there was a game this week? Right? Right. The point of, of coaching, right, is that the coach is aware of tendencies of another team on how to set up, how to play the game, and to properly coach up and prepare the team to go into battle, whether it's soccer, football, volleyball, basketball, wrestling, whatever it is, 
right? The coach prepares you for what is going to happen. If we are aware and coached up by the word of God, we will be ready to face the spiritual battle that is taking place around us. Without awareness and without a willingness to respond to this, you're, you're gonna be like the Gators of the past couple years, right? Showing up to a game and getting blown out by Florida State yet again. Yeah, I know, I touched a nerve there. Some of you guys are getting blown out by the enemy every morning, right? Every day you get up and you refuse to accept that there's a need to prepare and be ready for the reality of the day around you because it's not just your boss or your professor or your roommate or your spouse or your girlfriend or your mom or your dad or whoever who's giving you a hard time. There is a spiritual reality of what is going on there as well. And so not only does Paul point this out so that the church of Ephesus and subsequently us have this awareness that this is going on. But look at how he presents everything. He also does it to remind us that we need to trust in God, not ourselves for this battle. Right? I mean, he says, stand against the schemes of the devil, but he had just said right before that, be strong in who? The Lord and in the strength of his might. Right? He doesn't say, hey, Kevin, you know, get ready this morning. You got a big battle coming in front of you today and you need to be as strong as possible. No, the language of what Paul is saying here is like, Kevin, you kind of are a scrub. You're a bench warmer just like you were in football on God's spiritual team. But luckily, Christ is so good, he's gonna carry you in this battle. You just be ready, right? Cheer him on, whatever you need to do, but you just be ready, Right, the key to spiritual warfare is not found in our strength, but it is found in the strength of one who is stronger than us, and that is Jesus. He tells us to put on the whole armor of God, and we're gonna look at that more in just a second. But, it, but putting on the armor of God is not some super spiritual thing. It's not like Monty Python and the Holy Grail where you're on a quest to find this special stuff that God's gonna give you. But what we're gonna see in a second is that the armor of God is actually the application of what we have learned throughout the entire book of Ephesians. That the armor of God is applying the truths of your identity in Christ and allowing the gospel to cover every area of your life. It's knowing who you are in Christ and letting that do the work for you daily in your struggle with sin, in your struggle with rebellion, in your struggle with difficult relationships, and in the spiritual battles going on around you. And recognizing the reality of spiritual warfare, we are both aware that it exists, but also in the strength that resides in God to overcome our weakness in battling out Satan. We stand firm to Satan by standing firm in Christ. If you don't leave here today remembering any other line, remember that one. We stand firm against the work of Satan by standing firm in Christ. I know like it's, it's popular, like look at movies and see, see movies where exorcisms happen and whatever else, and there's all this crazy stuff. People are throwing holy water and yelling and screaming and people are levitating. There's all this wild stuff going on. But the biggest problem you consistently see in those movies is there's no pattern of the people standing firm in Christ and who they are in him. And Paul's gonna say, look, if you know who your identity resides in, you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
Now, he moves into verse 14, and what he's going to do is present the, the armor. And, you know, some of you guys, if you grew up and went to Awana or whatever, you, uh, you probably had these verses memorized. And I know at VBS, when I would help uh, out when I was older, right, they would actually do the armor of God. And, like, they would, each day of the week, you'd build a different piece of the armor at Bible camp. And so at the end of the week, you know, there'd be these little five-year-olds running around with a bunch of armor, right? And it said, like, faith, you know, and they'd put their shield up, or they'd put on a helmet. It'd say salvation on it, right? And it was this visual illustration, but sometimes that can, you know, cause things to get weird. But I want us to read through these verses, because even though the, the metaphor, and then sometimes we as Christians get really cheesy with this kind of stuff, right? The reality of what Paul is sh- sharing here is actually, like, a big deal, Right, starting in verse 14, look at what he says. He says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. All right, so, so what we see in those seven verses, right? Uh, Paul tells us to put on the armor of God, and he shares seven pieces of armor. Now, look, Paul is using metaphors here, okay? So there's going to be overlap of principles. There's going to be overlap of ideas. And, and, and some of it's going to be like, eh, that's kind of a weird analogy, but, but it's a metaphor, Right, like when you become a follower of Christ, God doesn't send you in, in a FedEx package a bunch of armor to put on each morning before you get up. Right, the reality is, is understanding the armor of God is to understand that the gospel can be applied in any area of our lives so that we can face the realities of a sinful, broken world around us, which also includes the work of Satan and his demons. Right? And so I want us to look at kind of each different piece of armor because Paul uniquely shares each of them because they each kind of play a role in helping us understand and apply the realities of our identity in Christ to this battle. Right? He says in, that, in, in verse 14 right, to, to put on the belt of truth. Okay? Now, for any of you guys that know anything, have you ever watched like the movie Gladiator or 300 or any of these other movies that, that have uh, knights uh, from around this time period, the belt had a very specific purpose, right, in, in the life of a soldier, right? It held their weapons at their side, right? If you didn't have a belt, you likely didn't have a sword, and if you didn't have a sword, you likely weren't going to do well in any battle, right? Not, not only that, but a belt kept armor in place. It prevented the breastplate from falling down too far, and it helped gird the rest of the lower region together, Right? As Pastor uh, J.D. Greer said in a sermon that I heard on this one time, he said, no one wants to go into a, pat- a battle with their pants down. Right? But the reality is, right, is that what Paul is saying here is that the belt of truth is kind of what holds things together and keeps us ready 
right, for the spiritual battle that's going on. Now, we need to kind of just pause for a second and define truth, right? Because it's really popular in our day and age to say, like, what do you find is true? And, and, and then it become super, super kind of um, pluralistic in our understanding of truth, right? And they say, well, that's your truth and that's my truth. By, by the way, can I just pause for a second here? If any of you hold to that worldview, please stop. It's so stupid. Okay, and here's why, right? If you hold to, to relativism in every area of your life, there is never any reason or need to ever gain knowledge or do anything. There's not, right? Oh, that's true for you, that's true for me. I really hope if I ever have to go into surgery that my surgeon likes the truth that other doctors have taught him about surgery. Oh, well, you know, I know that, you know, the AMA says that we should use... Um, uh, scalpels and equipment that's been sterilized, but that's your truth. It's not mine. I think we should use stuff that's been put in bacteria. That's my truth. I don't like your truth. You wanna know why? It's wrong. Right? Guys, if you hold to relativism, you should withdraw from the university. You should. If you are a relativist, you should withdraw from any university. You should stop wasting my tax dollars because you have nothing to learn there. No one can impart any knowledge to you because it's just truth for them. It's not truth for you. Right? The reality is that no human being really believes in relativism except when it comes to morality. And the reason that they hold to relativism when it comes to morality is they don't want to be told they're wrong and they can't do what they want. Just because you don't feel like it's right doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. Right, there are objective truths out there. Right, objective truth. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. It's observable. Right, if we hold to relativism, we destroy science. We destroy disciplines like philosophy and psychology because we can't discover what's ahead of us. Now the reality is, is right, Paul says here, right, to put on the belt of truth, and there's one thing we need to understand to start with. Truth is not just a doctrine or an idea, it's a person. Right, throw John 14, 6 up there for me, please. Right, Jesus, in talking to his disciples, he says, right, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, how does Jesus de define himself there? says, I am what? Truth, right? He's saying any, any truth, any observable reality in the world around us can be summed up in me, right? I think, I think something that we have a tendency sometimes as Christians to memorize doctrine and find our identity in doctrine, but our identity is not in doctrine. It is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Satan likes to prey on the weak, as we saw in 1 Peter 5, 8 earlier. But if you know who you are in Christ, guess what? You are not easy prey. If you know what Christ has done for you, if you know the depth and the magnitude of how loved you are, if you are in Christ, you are chosen. You are adopted, forgiven, redeemed, loved, if you know that to be true, right, the schemes of the devil will hold no weight against you because you know who you are. 
if you know who Christ is, if you know that he made a mockery of sin and death on the cross and in his resurrection, the devil has no power over you, right? Because you know that truth is found in him and anything that Satan throws out is lies and Jesus defeated him. Now, 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 not only is truth found in Christ, but the other thing we need to understand is that truth is the standard, right? This means, guys, that what God says about topics like sex, marriage, money, or anything else, it is to be followed and obeyed, right? Throw up uh, Genesis 3.1 for me really quick, guys. Here's the first interaction where, where we see people turning away from God. Right now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Anybody familiar with what Satan's doing there? He's taking a partial truth about what God had said and then twisting it to make it false. Right? God had not said that they could not eat of any tree in the garden. He just said that they could not eat of one tree in the garden. Right? This is what Satan tries to do. Right? He tries to twist these, these words. Right? Now, Eve and Adam, their, their, their failure was to trust in the truth of God's word and to believe that what he said was going to be true. Right? Satan goes on to say, it's like, oh God, you will not surely die. What had God said to Adam? If you eat of that tree, what will happen? You will surely die. What does Satan say? You will not surely die. Guess who was right? God. Guess who's always right? God, right? It's the Sunday school answer. You can get it right every time, right? God says and declares to Adam and Eve, and yet they refuse to trust him. The reality is, is truth is found in Christ, and Christ is that standard. So here's what this means. Know your Bible, right? Know the word of God and be willing to stand for it. All right, moving on to the next piece of armor, right? He says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. All right, for those of you guys that didn't care about uh, world history in ninth and 10th grade, let me tell you just a little bit about what breastplates were. Right, it's that piece of armor that covers you from about like the top of your shoulders to about your midsection. And here's why it's so important. It covers all of your vital organs. Like it, it's pretty important stuff. And if you had a breastplate that had a hole in it, you were potentially in trouble. If you had armor that was weaker than your opponents, you were potentially in trouble because that breastplate would prevent a sword from impaling you. All right, that was the entire point of it. And so what Paul is saying here, hey, hey, put on the breastplate of righteousness so you know that you'll be covered and safe. Right? Throw up 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is what Paul's kind of referencing in this moment. He says, for our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, right? What, what Paul is saying there is if your righteousness is found in Christ, you are covered and protected. If your righteousness comes not from your own performance, but from the work of Christ, you are protected and safe. And what you need to do is remind yourself that your righteousness comes not from your own performance, but from Christ. And so you gird up the truth of knowing of who Christ is, and then you put on that breastplate of righteousness, declaring that you are redeemed and righteous because of Christ. And then he says, 
to put shoes for your feet so that the readiness given by so that you might be ready for the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I mean, that's kind of cool, right? Put on some shoes. He says, being ready, guys, here's what we need to understand from that verse. Being ready to share the good news of the gospel is a way in which God protects us from the work of Satan. Like, uh, like evangelizing, whatever word you want, term you want to use for it, sharing your testimony, telling others about Jesus, whatever term you want to use, right, is actually a tool that God has given us to protect us from spiritual warfare. I know a lot of us don't like to share our faith. We don't want to like be weird or whatever else it is. But the reality is, is that God is saying here that sharing your faith is actually a protection against spiritual warfare. And here's how, right? It gives you purpose, let me let you guys in on a little secret. Think about when you often sin or get into trouble. And think about what was going on in that time. I would be willing to bet that you were bored in some way before that happened. Here's some giggling. Because someone's just come to the realization, crap, every time I sin, I'm really bored right beforehand. Right, guys, I would say like 90% of the time when I find myself getting into trouble, it's because I've allowed myself to become bored and unsatisfied with my life around me. <laughs> but here's the reality. We should never be bored. We shouldn't. If you are a follower of Christ, you have no reason to ever be bored. Right? You have been given a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify and make much of God, and in doing so, tell other people about how amazing Jesus is. And if you are focused on being the everyday church, as we've been throwing out here for the last couple months, which just means being a faithful witness to the gospel and making much of Jesus in every sphere of your life, you are not going to be bored. If you walk into work on a Monday morning concerned about how you're going to make much of Jesus that day, you are not going to be bored. If you go home to your wife and kids and are concerned about how you're going to make much of Jesus in, in their lives with the remaining time that you are awake, you are not going to be bored. When you are meeting your neighbor or talking to your postman or whatever it is you're doing and you are concerned about being the church and making much of Jesus and sharing the good news with others, you will never be bored. You won't. And some of this is just common sense stuff, right? Where we, we as leaders at Aletheia Church are gonna continue to work to disciple you so that you can be the everyday church. Our goal for your life for as long as you are in Gainesville and when you leave is that you are ready so that it becomes reflexive for you to tell about Jesus to others. That's what we want. We want it to just be reflexive. Like, hey, would you like coffee? Would you like Jesus? You don't need to be that weird. Right, But if, if any situation, guys, if you genuinely care for other people, you will have opportunities to share your faith with them because people will start opening up to you about the reality of their lives. Right? I'm gonna throw my Bible study under the bus here for a minute. Right? First week of our study, guess what we had everyone do in that group? Start airing their dirty laundry about how their marriages were going. And guess what? Everyone had some crappy marriages sometimes. Guess what? Because they're in them. I love you guys. Sorry. But you're the problem, right? And then when Jackie and I started talking about our marriage, guess what? It's crappy sometimes. You want to know why? I'm, I'm a part of it, right? I'm a sinner, right? If we start opening up 
in realizing that a lot of the struggles and things that we walk through are the same struggles that other people walk through, then we can start talking about how Jesus is our hope and our fortress and the truth over our lives that declares we are righteous and in Christ. And we give others that same hope that has been given to us. And Paul says, put on the shoes of the gospel so that you are ready at any given time to share that truth with others. If you're like, some of you guys, I understand, like you're just not outgoing. Like uh, we do evangelism training every Thursday at around lunchtime over on the campus. So if you wanted to get trained in just how to share your faith with somebody, come to the BCM, which is directly across the street from Library West, right? Eat some, eat some like really kind of not so great food for five bucks. By, by the way, I'm not saying the food is, is bad. I'm just saying like if you are health conscious, this is not the meal for you, right? I don't care, so I eat it every Thursday, right? But it's all you can eat, and then we go out, we pray, and we invite some people to church and, and try to get into conversations about Jesus with them. We will train you on how to do that so that you can lead that place and do that in any other sphere of your life. And if you do this, you will become more confident and you will be more ready to share the good news of Christ with others. Right? If you are trained and equipped, you'll be ready to do this. Right? If, if, if that's not a possibility for you to be there at that time, we will make time to, to, to show you how to do this. But we want all of you to be ready to be able to talk about the good news of what God has done in your life. Guys, every one of you has a story about what Jesus has done in your life. Great tool for evangelism. It's called your testimony. Use it. Right? You don't have to be, right, Ravi Zacharias and be able to dismantle every philosophical argument in the universe. You know what dismantles a really, really good philosophical argument? The reality of what Christ has done in your life. It's really good at it. Well, here was my life before I was self destructive, self defeating, a bad friend miserable and depressed. And since coming to Christ, I have seen freedom in every one of those areas of my life, and my life has purpose and joy now. Argue philosophically all you want, Jesus actually changed my life. And no philosophical argument you can make can change that because I've experienced it and walked through it. Right, so he says, put on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the shoes for your feet for the readiness given of the gospel. And the next thing he says, right, is grab the shield of faith. Right? And he says that it protects us from the flaming darts of the evil one. Meaning he says, hey, like one of Satan's strategies is to tell lies and then throw them at you, and there's no need to fight through them. Simply put up the shield of your faith. Right, guys, I, I don't know about you guys, but there are times in my life where I hear lies. I either tell them to myself or I actually like physically hear them. Things like, you're sinful. Kevin, you're unlovable. You're pathetic. You're unredeemable. No one can love you. You're worthless. Right, those are things I both tell myself sometimes and things that I hear. And if I start to start trying to think through those things and justify myself, oh, I am lovable. Look at me, I'm kind of funny. And no one would ever be, you know, scared of me. I'm 5'6". You know, like I'm super lovable. Look at me, I'm kind of cuddly. Jackie would say otherwise, by the way. Right, if I start trying to justify myself, right, it gets into this back and forth. 
right? But if I throw up my faith, if I start speaking the truths of the gospel over those lies, guess what? My faith tells me that I'm loved. Christ has declared me adopted. The good news of the gospel says that I was predestined and known by God before the foundations of the world. The gospel says that I have a heavenly father who loves me and gave his only son for me. And so when I hear lies that I'm sinful, unlovable, pathetic, and unredeemable, I can say, yeah, but my God says so much more about me. Guys, we need to start doing the hard work of not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in Christ, right? Think about the words that Paul shares in the book of Romans, right? In Romans 8.1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he finishes that chapter, starting at verse 38, by saying this, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have faith in that. There is nothing in this world or outside of this world that can separate you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Nothing. No matter what lies Satan might hurl at you. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. He moves on to say to put on the helmet of salvation. Do you guys know that helmets cover your head? Some people found that funny. I thought that was going to be way funnier than it was, right? <laughs> right? Helmets cover your head. And what Paul is telling us here, right? Hey, this, this guy sounds like the breastplate of righteousness, Kevin. Yes. Right, Paul is telling you to meditate on God's saving grace in your life and cling to that. And he moves offensively, right? And he says, to take up the sword of the Spirit. Right, meaning, here's what he's saying, guys. And he, he, he says the sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. Guys, this is a weapon when it comes to spiritual warfare. The words given to us in this book are a weapon against the lies and schemes of the world around us. It's why you need to know it and be in it every day. Every day. Because you are, you and I both are quick to forget those promises that I just spit out just a minute ago about who we are in Christ. We're quick to forget the realities of Romans chapter eight. We are quick to believe in the words of those around us and not the words that God has declared to be true of us. But if you know this, right? not only are you ready to be protected by the realities of what Christ has declared to be true of you, but to go back on the offensive and, and, and speak truth over them, right? You know, you know what I love to do when I feel like I'm being attacked spiritually, right? And Jackie's probably heard me at times, you know, whispering or praying aloud and kind of just like, what's going on over there, right? I love like when, when I just feel like some sort of spiritual attack coming on. It's like, you're unlovable. Yeah, but God loves me anyway. But you, Satan, actually really are unlovable and are not redeemed, how about them apples? 
guess what, Satan? I read the end of the book. You lose. Right? That disarms spiritual warfare really quickly. We win. By the way, I like winning. I'm like, you guys, winning is fun. It's even better when that winning comes from God. And we enter into battle, right, knowing the word of God by reading it and then applying it to our lives. Right? And allowing the work of the gospel to do work in us and through us. All right, lastly, last, last piece of armor. It's actually not a piece of physical armor at all, right? but in my opinion, it might be the most important thing that he lists there. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit. When? All times. Right? We have a proclivity or tendency to pray when things get really tough or things are difficult or we realize the reality of the hopelessness of a situation around us. Guys, what if we prayed at all times? What if we prayed before a trial, during a trial, and after a trial? What if we prayed before we got cancer, during cancer, and after we overcame cancer? What if we prayed before we lost our job, during the job loss, and after we found a new one? What if we prayed before we lost a loved one, during the loss of a loved one, and after the loss of a loved one? Right? How more prepared might we be to face the realities of life around us if we did that? <laughs> How much more prepared might we be to then see the fact that God both hears our prayers and is mighty to respond to them? Guys, I've seen God do some pretty crazy things through prayer. I've seen him heal people. I've seen him save people. I've seen him start movements for the gospel. Prayer is effective. And look at what he says to pray for. Right? He says he sh that you should be praying for your perseverance. You should add supplication for the saints, meaning you should be praying for others, other brothers and sisters around you and that, that God might work in their lives? And then what's the last thing he asks them to pray for? Himself. He says, he says also for me. Guys, can I just tell you something? Please, please, please pray for, for the leaders in your life. Please. Whether it's a campus ministry or here at this church. Guys, I desperately need your prayers. The other elders and leaders of this church desperately need your prayers. I think there's this, this tendency to think that because someone's a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a leader in, in, a, in a ministry, that, that they're spiritually beyond being tempted to sin and stray from God. And that is not the reality. Right? I, I face temptations on the daily to place my hope and my trust in something else other than Jesus. And there have been times where if it weren't for the effective prayers of righteous men and women in my life, right, to kind of wake me out of the funk. There have been times where I've, I'm getting ready to do something stupid and I'll get a text from someone that just says, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm like, okay, God, hi. Okay, like, I hear you, right? Like, pray that your leaders will be kept from temptation. 
Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ to be kept from temptation. Pray that God would keep you from temptation. And that when you are faced with temptation, pray that God would help you to stand firm and stand against it and resist it. To stand against the schemes of the enemy. Right? If, you, if you see all this, see all these things that, that Paul is saying here in this, in this kind of this final word to the church of Ephesus, hopefully you guys have been able to take away kind of two major points. Right? The first one is that spiritual warfare exists and there is a battle going on for your soul. Please do not leave here this morning thinking that all of this is made up. It's, it's not. Like, there, guys, I'm not, I'm not gonna get into specifics. I've seen some weird stuff over the years. Some of you guys know some of the stories of some weird demonic things that I have experienced. Some of you guys have stories of weird demonic things that you have experienced. If you've never experienced that, by the way, don't think that you're like a lesser Christian. Thank God that you didn't have to experience it. I'm gonna say like anytime I've experienced some sort of demonic oppression somewhere, it, it, it is weird and it is kind of scary. And yet every time I've been around it, God has been faithful. But it is out there, guys. It is real and we need to not fall into the pit and the trap that C.S. Lewis warns us against of failing to realize that it actually exists. Now, not only is it real, right, but then God, God tells us this, fight, fight with the armor of the gospel. Fight with the armor of the good news of your identity in Christ. Most of us want to fight spiritual warfare by focusing on the issues itself, right, our sin. I, I can put my sin to death. Right, like I, I can just withstand this, right? Or I can, I can withstand the lies and deception. Paul says you fight the schemes of the devil by applying the gospel to yourself. That you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. That you're saved by his blood. That you're girded together by the truth that is found only in him. That you're shielded by the faith of his promises. That you're ready to battle at any time with the message of the good news and with the truth of his word as your sword. Guys, that is good news. Not in how strong you are, but in how strong he is to save. I want to finish by looking at one more story this morning over in Luke chapter 11. If you've got a, your Bible, go ahead and turn over there with me. If not, it'll be up on the screen for you. Let me just read these verses to you, starting in verse 14. Now he, that's Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a, a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when, one, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Guys, here's what Jesus is saying there. He's like, look, first of all, if I'm casting out demons by, by Satan, Satan's divided against himself. And guess what? Houses divided against themselves do not stand. And if the same power of a demon that is oppressing someone else is cast out by another demon, it's not possible because they have the same strength. But if a stronger man comes along and casts that demon out or casts away that guard, then they leave. And God is stronger than Satan meaning that the power that is being used to cast these demons out is from God and of God because God is more powerful than Satan. Then he goes on to say that if a demon is cast out but the strong man does not remain to guard, guess what? The demon returns and finds a clean house swept for them, ready to reenter. Guys, what Jesus is saying here is that victory over Satan and demons is impossible without something stronger than them. And guess what? It's not you. Right? The reality of spiritual warfare is that without Christ, you will not see victory. You will not. But Jesus is the stronger man. He gives us a victory, and then we rest in him to guard us after he has swept us clean. And that is why when everything you see here is, is a battle metaphor of putting on armor, but guess who we're putting on? We're putting on Christ. Right? There's, there's nothing there saying, Kevin, in your power, do all this. No, he's saying, put up Christ's righteousness. Right? Put on the truth that is found in Christ. Put up the shield of faith that only rests in the gospel. Fight with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, not your own intelligence. Pray fervently for God to move, not you. Right? Everything that's listed there is telling us that if your identity is in Christ, Jesus is the strong man who sweeps clean the work of the enemy and then guards you. Church, If you do not know that there is a spiritual battle raging around you right now and your need for Christ, this is the time to realize it. And here's how I know, by the way, that Jesus is the stronger man. Right? Look at verse 23 and 24 of Ephesians 6. He says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what he says in verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with what? Love incorruptible. 
Jesus loves with a love that is incorruptible for you and I. And that peace comes from who? Him and Him alone. Are we ready for battle? Are we in Him? Are we ready to put on the armor that reminds us of our identity in Christ and fights for that joy? Here's what we're gonna do as we, as we, have a, as we enter into our, our time of response this morning. Right, if I can get somebody to turn the lights down and we can go ahead and get the band to come back up and start praying. But here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a time of response where you can come up and you, if you need to, you can pray with somebody. We're gonna have, we're gonna have um, some men and some women around here that, that will pray for you. So some of them are gonna be elders of this church or, or, or staff here. Um, my wife will be one of them. She doesn't know that yet, but now she does. Right. And some of them will be up front here. So if I can get you guys to go ahead and come on up front here, we'll have one or two people in the back. Right. But during this time of response, here's what I would ask you to do. Number one, will you pray and ask God to search your own heart on whether your identity is really in Christ? Or are you fighting or at war with the schemes of the devil on your own power? And if that is the case, right, ask God to sweep you clean and, 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 and meet him in this place today. And then I ask you to pray, pray this, that you would confess sin and that you would rest in the truth that your righteousness is found in Christ, not in your own performance. Guys, if you, if you are in the throes of habitual sin, struggling, working through a difficult season in your life right now, here is what you do not need. You don't need more strength in your own power so that you can somehow overcome it and become self-sufficient. What you need is a reminder of God's love for you and how Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. That he loved you when you were unworthy and unlovable and he continues to do so. And sometimes, I, I've been there, sometimes you're hurting so badly that you don't want to pray that prayer yourself. Come up and ask somebody to pray for you. We would, be, we would love to pray that prayer over you. That you would find that love and that hope and that peace and that forgiveness that only comes from Jesus. And then pray that then God's love and faith in him will shield you from the lies of spiritual warfare. That you might find your hope and peace in him. As I pray that we would know Jesus, know our identity in him, confess our sin, and be surrounded by the faith only comes from Christ's work in us. And after you do that, you can come up and you can take communion, worshiping him freely because communion represents that Jesus willingly gave his flesh and blood so you might be forgiven and redeemed. And that you might take communion as a disciple of Christ joyfully, not in condemnation, but in freedom because Christ has declared you free and you are in So respond at this time. Respond out of your identity in Christ.
And let's go forward this week being the church, putting on the armor of the gospel, making much of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our identity, which is rooted in you. I pray that all of us would leave here today with an awareness about who we really are, and that is yours. And Lord, if we're not already one of your sons and daughters, move in us that we might trust in you. Thank you for the freedom and forgiveness that only comes in Christ. We love you, and I ask this all in Jesus' name.